Workers' Comp Matters, the podcast dedicated to the laws, the landmark cases, and the people that make up the diverse world of workers' compensation. Here are your hosts, Judd and Alan Pierce. Hello again, Alan Pierce and Judson Pierce here on Workers' Comp Matters and the Legal Talk Network, uh, where we bring you topics relating to injuries on the job and workers' compensation in general. And I want to thank you for tuning in and listening. We have an interesting, I I believe, podcast today. Uh, We're going to discuss post-traumatic stress disorder generally, but more specifically, the impact of this particular diagnosis or other mental health diagnoses on first responders. For that discussion, we have a returning guest, attorney Bob Winooski of Arizona. Judd, why don't you introduce our guest? I'd be happy to. Thanks, Alan. Bob is a member of the Arizona State Bar, Workers' Compensation. He's a fellow of the College of Workers' Compensation Lawyers. He's one of the premier advocates and practitioners in Arizona, practicing workers' comp for for over 40 years, and his law firm is dedicated to providing justice for injured workers throughout Arizona. Bob is also very dedicated in other fields and uh, serves his time on the board of directors for Kids Chance of Arizona, which is an organization dedicated to providing scholarships for children of Arizona's injured workers. So thank you, Bob, for joining us again today. Thank you, Judd, and thank you, Alan. I'm happy to be here today to talk about first responders and the unique issues with representing first responders that often migrate into post-traumatic stress disorder claims. Yeah, and let's get let's get into that. Workers' comp in general has not recognized mental health or psychiatric disability claims at the inception of uh, the programs of workers' comp. It sort of came along at the latter, maybe the latter quarter of the last century. So you just sort of give us an idea of the particular issues simply surrounding any type of psychiatric stress disorder, especially one that doesn't arise after a physical injury. Those were a little more common. But when there is a psychological stressor and a psychological result, could you perhaps lead us through a brief discussion of that? Certainly. I've done some research and I've looked into every state's mental health laws or workers' comp laws that deal with post-traumatic stress disorder. It's very surprising that some states do not offer any benefits at all for a mental injury that is simply mental itself, not arising out of in companionship with a physical injury. That's amazing. I think we're seeing now that maybe the workers' compensation system is getting dragged into recognizing post-traumatic stress disorder, probably because as a result of the fact that the military and the Veterans Administration is increasing its treatment of veterans that are returning from the wars with post-traumatic stress disorder. So I think we're seeing a little bit of a loosening up in favor of the injured first responder. But Alan is correct. It, it really is being dragged into the system very slowly over the years. They didn't recognize, as the military didn't recognize post-traumatic stress earlier, it was called combat exhaustion or combat shock or what have you. But now there's it recognizes the, the diagnosis. So it's difficult to handle because each state has some different standards on post-traumatic stress disorder. And Quite honestly, the expectations of the first responders differ than my expectations from my other clients that are not first responders, and I can get into that a little bit. Bob, can you give us an example uh, or a list of some first responders? Who are they? What are their jobs? Sure. I think it's important to perhaps define that. First responders are typically fire personnel, 
law enforcement personnel, uh, city sheriffs, uh, city police officers. It's migrated over to first responders being emergency medical technicians that are running the ambulances. We see that now to go into people that are working in the hospitals as first responders in the emergency room and in critical care, things of that nature, corrections. All of those are essentially first responders. And they're like any other clients that we have, and they have certain qualities that are good and certain qualities that are bad. For example, a lot of times they don't report an injury. They don't report the mental or psychological injury because they really perhaps think, oh, the system will take care of me. I put my life on the line and the system will take care of me and they don't make a report. That, that's one problem. Another problem is that they don't choose to make the report or they report it to their sergeant and it does, doesn't go any further up the line of command. In most states, particularly here in Arizona, the worker has an obligation to file his own claim. So often we see a first responder saying, well, I told my sergeant and I'll say, well, what happened? Well, nothing. And I said, you didn't go back to your sergeant and you meet with them monthly and it's been months and months and months. And then they fall into the statute of limitations and they may miss their claim. So that's a, that's a particular problem because they're kind of military oriented that I've told the chain of command and the chain of command will take care of me. And that's not the case. You know, as, as you were describing these fact uh, scenarios, I think it's a good idea to pivot to the fact that there can be two types of claims for post-traumatic stress. The first type could be as a result of a single extremely traumatic incident. 9-11 comes to mind. Uh, the school shootings come to mind. Some of these other dramatic, highly stressful events. On the other hand, there's a whole category of cases that you could speak to where there isn't one single event, but the nature of the job itself produces, I guess, what we call repetitive psychological stresses. Somebody who's working in a correctional field in a CO in a, a, a very violent prison, for example, dealing with days, weeks, months, years of inmate altercations, violence, uh, deaths, et cetera. How, how do you distinguish between the single episode of stress and the job description that is basically a stressful job? That's a good distinction. Here in Arizona, we've had some action and activity in our Supreme Court over the last year or two regarding that exact topic in post-traumatic stress dealing with law enforcement. My Arizona Supreme Court has said you cannot make a gradual post-traumatic stress claim in the state of Arizona. So we often have officers that come to us and say, my job is terrible. I've had 20 years of misery dealing with dead bodies and what have you. And I want to file a claim. And, and we have to then say to them, look, we really have to go to the last and perhaps one specific event. And that's what we're going to file the claim on that may be not necessarily the straw that breaks the camel's back, but that may be the claim. He may not be able to use the other ones to say, well, this is the one that tipped me over because of our Supreme Court most recent decisions in April of last year saying you can't have a gradual workers' compensation PTSD claim. And I think they're worried about the floodgates opening of officers and firemen upon retirement saying, I've had 20 years of seeing dead bodies or babies falling out of windows and fires, uh, drownings, things of that nature. So 
at least in this state, we're pretty well circumscribed to a specific event or one or two events at the same time, close in, close in time. Yeah, and it's, it's glad you pointed out that uh, that's the state of the law in Arizona. As you mentioned, you look at other states. Massachusetts, for example, when our Supreme Judicial Court first allowed a mental health claim as a result of a non-physical uh, stressor, it was limited to a single identifiable stressful incident. And then the next case came along where there was basically a series of them leading to the last one, which put the guy, uh, in this case, a gentleman out of work. And our Supreme Judicial Court indicated it could be a single identifiable stressful incident or a series of identifiable stressful incidents. And I, and they did uh, deal with in their decision, uh, we're going back to the 1970s, Fitzgibbon's case in Massachusetts, for example, pointing out the policy reasons that you indicated. Yes, this could potentially open floodgates, but they recognize that people can and do deal with extreme stresses in the workplace. And even though the diagnosis and the presentation of a mental health case is different than a physical injury, you can't x-ray it, you can't give an MRI to it, that it is due, to, it is up to the fact finder in each case to look at the facts. When you were describing the categories of first responders, you, you uh, of course, identified first police and fire. Need they be public employees or can they be first responders from the private sector as well, such as a private hospital as opposed to a public hospital? I think they would fall in the same category, and thank you for including that. And the, the problem with most of these, as I see at least in the public sector, is that the officer, and let's just focus on police, the officer does not want to report the claim because he's afraid of the stigma. You know, we're all supposed to be macho in our profession as a law enforcement. Uh, if he's depressed, he may feel that, well, if I tell somebody I'm not going to get promoted, I'm going to be stigmatized by my fellow officers. They're not going to want to be with me because they think I'm a risk, that they'll treat me differently. And there's some studies to that effect that in asking officers those questions, why they didn't file claims, they said they were worried about being passed over for by promotion or that their supervisor would treat them differently. And maybe that's a problem sometimes because I, as I talk to officers, they say, we just didn't, we don't want to claim it. In my opinion, in working with officers that are in critical situations with shootings and death and motor vehicle and things of that nature, chemical exposures where they're seeing horrific injuries, almost every officer or any first responder that's exposed to those kinds of situations is going to have post-traumatic stress disorder, in my opinion. By the way, before we get to Judd's question, you mentioned a lot about police and fire in Arizona. Again, I caution our listeners in other jurisdictions, such as Massachusetts, for example, police and fire personnel are exempt from workers' comp. They're not covered under our workers' comp law. They come under a different statute, an injured on duty statute, which is paid separately. So are your police and fire under your particular comp statute or do they have a parallel uh, injured on duty statute? Right now, they are under the Workers' Compensation Act, where the discussion amongst um, people in the industry is that because of the severity of these claims and the frequency of them and the volume of them, that there might be wise at some point in the future to take them out of workers' compensation. And perhaps something like Massachusetts offers a different type of compensation system. We have a very unusual statute in Arizona. And this was just recently challenged by one of our appellate judges who said, I believe the statute is unconstitutional. And our Supreme Court just went to grave lengths saying it's not. 
And if you want to deal with it, you need to go to our legislature. It came out at Thanksgiving of 2022. Our statute says the event must be unusual. It must be extraordinary or extraordinary, maybe, if that's the way you want to break it out. So that's difficult because our Court of Appeals said, well, everything that a policeman does is unusual, unexpected, or extraordinary. So if I cut my hand at work in the office, I can file a comp claim. And if I get an infection from that, it's covered because they're tied together. I don't need an unusual cut of my hand. And, and our Supreme Court said, no, the, our statute included all of that. And it was right. It was okay for our legislature to create this statute many years ago that said it's an unusual, unexpected, or extraordinary event. So we have to focus on that event as a gate before the officer can go any further. Many times we're able to prove that there is PTSD, but we can't prove that the event is unusual, unexpected, or extraordinary. They'll bring in experts and say, well, that's usual police work. People get shot at every day. So that's the that's the predicament in our state. And I would caution every listener to inquire about your own particular state by consulting a lawyer in that state. Why don't we take this moment to hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Robert Wisniewski. Mara's case is the number one law practice management solution tailor-made for workers' compensation firms. Streamline your practice with Mara's case's easy-to-use all-in-one platform. You're empowered to breeze through case and document management, workers' compensation forms, e-filing, calendaring, and invoicing. Learn how Mara's case can increase your firm's efficiency today. Visit Mara'sCase.com. That's M-E-R-U-S-C-A-S-E.com. And we're back. We were talking with our special guest, Robert Wisniewski, about first responders. I'd like to uh, pivot into the conversation, the concept of presumptions, Bob, and what are those generally and how do they apply to this area? A presumption in the law essentially is that if you meet certain elements of the criteria, then you automatically move into whatever the subject is. So there are lots of presumptions typically for firefighters, at least in my state, and maybe that's because the fire has a greater political pull at the legislature. So we have a cancer presumption, for example. If an office, a fire officer um, has served so many years, um, makes an application before he's a certain age, and he's got a diagnosis from an expert in the cancer field that he has a certain type of listed cancer that is presumed related to the workers' compensation activities of that officer, that fire officer, as long as he meets the, the, each of the elements. So he doesn't have to, he just proves the elements and then the carriers or the self-insured employers will have to disprove the claim. So it helps the worker. I can give you an, an interesting example in the state of Washington. Most recently, they have a presumption that if an officer worked 10 years and had the problems that we're talking about, uh, psychological problems emanating from his work, as long as he can prove that he had 10, perhaps a gradual over 10 years, contrary to what we can do here in Arizona, then that is a, he has presumed to have PTSD, but it's rebuttable. Then that means that the other side can come in and say, well, yeah, you meet the criteria of 10 years of shootings and psychological injury in a 
mental health individual has diagnosed that, and therefore you're, you, you are presumed to have it, but maybe you've had some very serious mental problems in your own life, death of family members, things of that nature. So they can try to rebut the presumption. So the presumption is you kind of automatically win is the best way I can describe it. We do not have that presumption in Arizona with respect to a post-traumatic stress disorder. If you recall during COVID, uh, the several years of COVID, many states had presumptions that you would get a COVID injury was covered in your state if you met the following elements, one, two, three, four, and five, and then they would have to prove, the, the other side would have to prove that oh, you, you incurred it somewhere else, traveling to a foreign country, or what have you. So that's kind of a little complicated but lengthy explanation of uh, presumption. We do not have a PTSD presumption, either for fire or first responders in Arizona. We actually covered the concept of presumptions on one of our COVID shows that uh, is in our archives of uh, Workers' Comp Matters. But you, you sort of pointed out, I guess, what was described in that show as a difference between a conclusive presumption and a, um, a rebuttable presumption. And a conclusive presumption is as you described it. You have meet the criteria, you have the disease, and it is covered. And I know in Massachusetts, in our cancer um, presumptions, it is a conclusive presumption. If you have lung cancer and you've been a firefighter, it is covered uh, under their, um, not workers' comp, but under their injured on duty. Um, when you were talking about the cancer uh, presumption in Arizona, is that a conclusive presumption? You said it does. It, it's rebuttable. It you don't have any presumptions it, for mental, but... It is. It is. On certain kinds of cancers, some other most recently enacted cancers are rebuttable. Okay. So that the, in some circumstances, the self-insured employer can offer evidence, medical expert, that it's not covered. Is the eligibility for post-traumatic stress disorder benefits only limited to the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder? Let's say as a result of the particular significant stress at, in the workplace, um, and the person doesn't develop PTSD, but develops a, perhaps another DSM-5 diagnosis, whether it's anxiety disorder or depression, if that's still a DSM, uh, but something other than PTSD, can they be covered and paid? They can be covered. And that's an interesting point because most of the time you'll see the initial diagnosis as perhaps an adjustment disorder, and then it may migrate into something more serious. We also in Arizona have a one-year statute of limitations in filing a workers' compensation claim. And as a result of uh, some litigation that we were involved in and some appellate work a few years ago, it is now one year, at least as to post-traumatic stress and probably other mental injuries in, in the field of first responders, one year from the date of diagnosis, not from the date of event. So the officer may say, well, I, I had the shooting and it was maybe more than a year ago, but I didn't start to decompose or didn't know I was decomposing mentally, depression, what have you. I had minor anxiety and maybe adjustment to my job. And then my doctor, my family doctor said, well, I really think you need to see a mental health provider. And he did. And the mental health provider said, you have post-traumatic stress disorder. He then, we filed the claim on him. It was more than one year after the event and our, uh, we were successful. Unfortunately, the defense always tries to come out with, well, you might have been diagnosed by a doctor a year later, 
in a year, and then we go from that one year forward. But oh, did you talk to other officers about PTSD? Did you talk to retirees? So you have to be careful in selecting a case and talking to the injured worker that he himself doesn't read up on PTSD and then self-diagnoses himself. I think that would cut away from he either knew or should have known that he had PTSD or a mental disorder. All right, we're going to take another short break, and we'll be back uh, to finish our topic with Bob Wojnowski and PTSD among first responders. We'll be right back. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. And we're back. Uh, Bob, what about the scenario where someone has a physical injury on the job and then following that, or as a result of that physical injury, develops an emotional or mental trauma? Uh, is that handled any differently than, say, the officer or first responder that suffers a psychological trauma to begin with? That's a good point. In fact, that is a distinction that our two recent court cases have made that it's a, we call it a physical mental. It's a little easier to prove. In my opinion, it almost then takes it out of the unusual, unexpected or extraordinary situation because they don't have to prove that. Although that will be something that the defense will always argue. The defense is no longer allowed to argue in Arizona that it was, uh, we train them. We train officers to, to be in shootings and things of that nature. Our Supreme Court said that's that's a very foolhardy defense. But if we can prove that there was a physical injury and then the gentleman develops or the gentlewoman develops um, emotional problems as a result of that, I see that no differently than a broken shoulder and in, the, in a physical injury, regular workers' comp case, and then the person then starts to develop psychological problems because of the pain. So I, my opinion then is it, it, it takes it away from being unusual, unexpected, or extraordinary as long as perhaps the original event is accepted as a physical claim. Yeah. And, and you know, you used some jargon that, that we're, as uh, workers' comp attorneys are familiar with in describing these types of cases. We've talked initially about the so-called mental-mental cases. What that means is a mental or, or non-physical stimulus or stress such as a shooting, et cetera, and a non-physical response, a mental response. So that's a mental, mental claim. You also just, in the answer to the last question, talked about a physical mental, whether it's a physical injury then followed by, you know, the psychiatric or psychological uh, problems. There's also another uh, that would be mental physical. 
And you probably had some of those cases. Uh, describe what a mental physical case would be, perhaps in the setting of a uh, first responder. Well, I think one simple one would be that, you know, there's some anxiety over a shooting or chasing a, a suspect or something of that nature. And then they develop gastritis or stomach problems and things like that, where the, the physical injury comes after and maybe as a consequence of the mental anxiety and adjustment. And, and those are perhaps a bit rare, but they're still out there. Yeah. And the ones that we've had some experience with, where there would be a sudden shock, and this isn't necessarily just limited to first responders, but we've had bank tellers held up and other types of extremely stressful mental issues. And it provoked a heart attack. It provoked a stroke. It produced, provoked a fainting spell with physical injuries as a result. So in essence, we have to be aware as litigators in this area of the particular evidentiary and burdens of proof and presumptions that exist for mental mental cases, physical mental cases, and mental physical cases. Any closing uh, words you might have to say, Bob, about uh, first responders? By the way, are they eligible for any type of retirement benefits based upon a disability? And if so, do those retirement benefits follow the same workers' comp rules as far as compensability? That's an interesting split. In Arizona, we have a public safety retirement program. For example, an officer who has passed all the psychological tests, physical tests, becomes an officer, then later cannot perform the essential functions of his patrol job or police job. He then goes into our public safety retirement if uh, he gets medical proof from an examining doctor that he can't perform the job description. So he gets a separate retirement. In workers' comp, it would have to be the same as it would be in a normal non-PTSD claim. It's whether or not the functions of what are the work functions and how do, how do they affect the ability of the worker to earn a certain wage. And he would they're not really retirement benefits. They're actually disability benefits because his psychological impairment prevents him from returning to his job and maybe doing comparable other jobs, uh, administrative work, dispatching. How else? Would he be able to earn a living? And they deduct that from his comp wage. So it's a little bit different than a straight retirement. But they're all complex and complicated and very worrisome cases. And they're devastating to the officers and first responders. There's no, no doubt in that, my mind about that. When you talk about the interplay between the retirement, Bob, and the receipt of workers' comp benefits, you said that the retirement in Arizona takes the offset? Uh, no, it does not take an offset does not take an offset. The offset is only in the workers' comp. If he earns this year $5,000 and and he maxed that out because he made more as an officer, but he can only earn $2,000 in working at Walmart as a greeter, they take us, they'd use that as a deduction from the $5,000 and pay him 55% of the difference for the future as long as that uh, split exists. So there's no offset between retirement and workers' compensation on a permanent benefit basis. So I think uh, the takeaways, among the takeaways from today's show are that these are very complicated cases, more so than the broken leg or the, you know, the torn rotator cuff, not that those can't be complicated, that mental health cases are relatively new in the workers' comp system, and perhaps most importantly to anybody listening uh, to this show and any of our prior shows, the comments that are made both by Judd and myself as well as our guests really are as general as they can be, perhaps limited to the particular jurisdictions, and in any event, you know, consult a knowledgeable workers' comp 
or retirement or other type of specialist because these are tricky cases and they're very fact dependent and they also follow the particular state of the law in that your particular jurisdiction because uh, Massachusetts does things differently uh, than Arizona and Washington and the other 47 states. So Bob, I want to thank you again for sharing your expertise with us and your audience. I always learn something when we speak to you, both on our podcast and when we get to meet uh, as we do during the year. And to all of you who listen, thank you for subscribing and listening to our podcast and go out and make it a day that matters. Bye-bye. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.